from Loyola University Chicago School of Law and WLUW, this is The Podvocate. We're law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Today on The Podvocate, we're talking to two LUC Law 3Ls, me, Radhika Sutherland, and me, Matt Doran. Today's discussion is a kind of Freudian exit interview. Our goal is to pose critical questions to each other and compare responses. We're going to unbox how two law students who were in the same school at the same time and under fairly similar personal circumstances might have divergent law school experiences. So Radhika, I know that you've been involved in the PIF class, but we were also the first students of the PIF class. For our non-Loyola student listeners, can you please say, give a brief description of what the PIF class is and who it's for, what it's targeted at, etc.? Yeah, so PIF, um, it's kind of a silly name. It's an acronym, P-I-F, stands for Professional Identity Formation. Um, I, I feel like that's a misnomer, but it's kind of the name it was given at the beginning, so we stuck with it. More than professional identity formation, it's a reflection into your internal implicit biases and an exploration of how that might play out during your legal career. So Loyola kind of um, spearheaded this experiment, essentially, Um, and created a class that was required, a required part of the curriculum. Every single 1L student is required to take it, and it incorporates practicing attorneys, upperclassmen, and professors, and the 1L students in in a discussion, a weekly discussion about issues surrounding implicit bias, microaggressions, and um, present scenarios on how um, those things present themselves in the legal field um, and really gives 1Ls an opportunity to explore something other than doctrinal law, um, something that's directly relevant to their experience. So with that in mind, you know, and we're going to kind of put words in the administration's mouth, but, you know, let's just assume that those were the goals of what you, what you just described were the goals of the course. Do you feel that, you know, having, I think your perspective is really interesting on this because you were part of the guinea pig class and then you've been involved in the class as a facilitator. Were you, did you, I know you did it as a three L, did you do it as a two L as well? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So you've been involved all three years. So you can kind of give us a sense of were those goals fulfilled and, you know, how the class may have evolved. Yeah, I think that obviously I feel that it was a very important endeavor. I think that um, we've, you know, had entire episodes about diversity and inclusion in the legal field and we, there's a serious lack of representation um, and we know demographically that um the people that are least represented in the legal field are the ones that are overrepresented in the criminal system of the United States. So I think it's really important for people to understand implicit bias. So I'm glad that the school began this, but just like anything else, you know, it, it's a work in progress I think the first year, um, because each section is small, right? You can't have those type of deep discussions in a, in a larger classroom setting. So you break it up into groups of like 10, 12, 15 students. Um, so every every group was having different experiences. So over time, um, over the the three years that I've been involved in it, I've seen I've seen an evolution. I've seen them learn and grow from what worked and what didn't work. And they've tried to make it a more uniform experience across all the small group discussions. Um, I'm rambling now. What what you've described the iteration of it as it's progressed over the last three years. And then I asked about that and I asked about whether the goals have been met. And I think you made the the right point of it's a work in progress. So in terms of goals being met, maybe the goal is just having this course and continuing to iterate. Yeah. The goal is to get people to think about it. 
And whether they're responding negatively or positively, they are thinking about it. So in that sense, I would say a goal is definitely fulfilled. Also, the goal is to align Loyola's mission statement more closely with the actions it's taking, right? Like, I think that every organization strives to meet its mission. And I think Loyola has fostered this reputation as a public interest or social justice-centered law school. And you can't rightfully say that unless you are focusing on those issues. And implicit bias is directly related to those things. So I believe that um, every year that goes by, uh, PIF improves and that the school comes closer to meeting its mission. And, I, and I, to be fair, I think that's the best that we could hope for. Um, that, that's that's really good to hear. I'm really glad to hear that. Um, are you are you similarly encouraged by what you see it becoming uh, in the next few years? I'm sure the class took on increased significance in the wake of last summer. Yeah, well, for white people, maybe it did. Um, I will say that the issues that have come to the forefront have always existed for communities, right? There have always been the center of um the community pulse. They've always been these issues of police brutality and underrepresentation. Um, if you are one of those, if you are a member of one of those groups, then that was a big reason you came to law school or, or, or it might not have been, I don't know, I can't speak for everyone, but those were already issues at the forefront of your mind, right? I mean, and I'm, I'm going to speak for myself, that those issues were at the forefront of my mind. I was already traumatized by Philando Castile and Eric Garner and Michael Brown. Um, and that was way before the George Floyd revolution happened, right? And those were the reasons I came to law school. So PIF already had a significance for me. But I'm sure that there were several white students, and I witnessed it with students in my in my sections, that that all of a sudden this class that maybe seemed tedious or just a requirement, it took on new significance. And um, I'm glad that the law school is providing a forum for people to really explore these issues. But I will say for many people in um, quote unquote minority communities, those issues were already a big motivating factor to come into law school. Sure. I, I'm, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I want to talk about the genesis of PIF, which actually overlaps with the genesis of the podcast, which is, is kind of cool. So without sharing too much of the, the contents, there was this letter that circulated um, around the LUC campus. And what was, uh, let me get my facts right, uh, spring of 2018. Um, yeah, right. Uh, right, exactly. You and I were at that point accepted students. We were on our way to Loyola and little did we know that there was uh, quite a storm brewing on campus. Um, it was written by a number of students who did not believe that the school was living up to its social justice mission in terms of certain experiences that uh, certain students uh, had had with regards to racial justice, as well as what they saw within the faculty and administration uh, and with regards to diversity. And this professional identity formation class was a product of that, as was the podvocate. Uh, Dean Kaufman felt that a podcast was a way to increase campus dialogue, and we can pat ourselves on the back for that later. Uh, <laughs> but my question to you is, speaking strictly within the campus, as a 1L, you know, you didn't, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Did you had you heard of this letter? Did you know of its existence before you came? No. No, I okay. learned about it once I came to and 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 initially it was just a bunch of rumors. Um, I didn't actually learn about the contents until right. later on. Okay. You know? um, so coming in ignorant of that, did you perceive or observe any kind of racial injustices or incongruities on campus um, and that were that you felt were inconsistent with the school's social social justice mission? 
I'm going to be really honest here. Um, I'm a non-black woman of color. So I have always been a very strong ally, um, but I still don't experience the same level of inequality as black or indigenous women would face, you know? So observationally speaking, I maybe wasn't fully aware or fully apprised of um, how my black classmates were feeling until I talked to them about it. Right. And I formed a very close bond with Dean Goff, who is a woman of color. I formed a good bond with Dean Harris, who's a woman of color. So I had mentors in the building who were women of color. So I felt really supported in that way. But then I would listen to my classmates and I understood that the school was not living up to its social justice mission. And my experience was singular, um, maybe compared to other, other students of color. Where I did feel that the school was really lacking in, in fulfilling its mission was in the classroom. Um, and I'll talk about a specific instance. It was in criminal law second semester, and you may or might, we were in the same section, so um, you may remember this. It was the day that we talked about the Latasha Harlan's case, um, which was the People versus Do in California, and then it was the Bernard Getz case in New York. Um, both of those cases involved the murder of black teenagers at the hands of um in in the latasha harlan's instant it was at the hands of an asian woman and in the gates case it was the hands of a white man and both of these cases were really traumatic i mean i was reading them preparing for class and i i was extremely heartbroken and disgusted about what our criminal law uh, looked like in the United States. And I was really curious to see how it would be discussed in class the next day. Um, and it was not handled well in class, I have to say. Like, it was almost treated as an, as a, as a debate on, on both sides. Like, you know, the teacher, what the professor would pose, like, assign a student to discuss a, a certain position. And that position was the murder of Black people. And I was horrified. I was like, this is traumatic. This is awful. We watched a video with Bernard Gates saying those, um, saying the N-word. I don't know. Do you remember any of this? Yeah, you're, you're ringing some bells. Uh, I... So I think that th this, right, this exchange between us is a really sure. good yeah, example right. of how how a classroom experience can traumatize students of color and um, and not really affect a white student in the same way. And that's understandable. But but in that moment, I, I really began to question the academic value of an exercise where we're being asked to justify racism. And I know that wasn't the professor's intention, but that's what was happening in the classroom at that moment. And, and I felt sick and I was, I cried afterwards. Um, and I talked to some of the students of color in the classroom and everyone was really upset. It was an upsetting experience for the students of color in the classroom. And I, I think that's a, it's a universal law school issue. It's not just a Loyola issue, but I think in that way, law schools are extremely um, married to this old style of education that I think is extremely insensitive to students of color. And um, Loyola definitely perpetuated that. I've been in classes where, where that has um, happened multiple times. So yeah, I think that there's a lot of room for improvement. Are you thinking that it's, in the same way that you just observed with me, where I I remember it, but I, I mean, I've also been accused of being dead inside by my wife, so maybe maybe, maybe that has something to do with it. Well, um, I having been friends with you for three years, I I think that that's um, not true. So I and which lends credibility to your 
point that, you know, I, I remember it. I remember being disturbed by the reading. I remember being disturbed by the case, but I wasn't, uh, I don't recall being at least disturbed by the academic discussion of it because I think uh, I was able to use my position as a white person to take a step back and, and be able to keep it at an arm's length distance. Like this is 30, 40 years ago, whatever it was, this were two people who had a problem and they're just, you know, they're, they're A and B or X and Y, like they're just variables. And because I'm a white person, I'm able to keep that arm's length distance. Whereas um, it sounds like the way you're describing this is that students of color feel a bit more connected to the people that are behind the particular case in a way that I wasn't. And it's, it's felt more. Yeah. That, and it's just like, I guess I'm questioning what's the, what's the point? So ultimately Dew and Gates, they were both like minimally punished and they literally murdered black teenagers, like children, and they got away with it. And in the classroom now, we're trying to get students to argue. I mean, I know the point of law school is to um, be able to form arguments for all positions, but we know now in 2021 that juries are racist, the system is racist. So why are we being asked to do mental gymnastics to justify that racism? Why can't criminal law professors or professors just say that was a wrong and racist decision. And how do we amend our criminal justice system to not allow these things to happen anymore? Right? Like, that's my point. I don't understand why we have to force students of color to put themselves in a racist white jury's shoes um, to justify the murder of Black teenagers. Like, I... I, I think that's a major problem in law schools and um, Loyola isn't any different in that it tackles those issues differently. Like for con law, for example, constitutional law, I think that it is incumbent upon con law professors to discuss that the fine founding fathers were slave owners and that the constitution was written for rich, um, wealthy, landowning white men. Like, it's just, it is the fact of the matter. And I think that stating that up front really affects how students perceive everything else a professor is teaching them throughout the semester. And I just don't think that our law school or any law school has done enough to lay the proper truthful foundation to teach the rest of the law. Do you think that, and I, I'm asking this because I'm a member of the um, teaching and curriculum committee, which is one of the subcommittees of all the faculty, various faculty committees. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, do you think it would be better, and this is just kind of a pedagogical um, you know, debate, but do you think it would be better to have the kinds of things that you're talking about as a standalone class, separate from professional identity formation, where you're, for example, talking about the three-fifths compromise and how it undergirds much of constitutional law, uh, or its history at least, and how the criminal justice system, its history and current manifestations are rooted in racism. Do you think that as a separate class that would work, or is it, would it be better to have a top to bottom restructuring of existing coursework, but imbue those with an understand or with instruction of here's how social justice, racial justice has played out over time. And here's how you as graduates of Loyola law could do this differently. All of the above, Matt. (laughs) Um, So just like with almost every system or institution in the United States. I think that it could use an overhaul top to bottom, but um, that's not realistic. So let me speak from how it exists and how we can improve on it um, immediately. I took a I took a class during law school called Race and the Law with Professor Juan Perea, and he a lot of his research has focused on this very thing. I mean, he's written well known publications about um, the origins of the Constitution, the way that I'm discussing it. 
race and the law was one of the most powerful, depressing, impactful, paradigm-shifting classes I've ever taken. Um, And it was filled with a bunch of other students who are students of color or deeply care about the issues. Um, it was this, it's an echo chamber, right? It's the same 20 people that I took civil rights law with, or the same 20 people that would attend these talks about police accountability that I would go to. It's the same people who are already interested in it that are taking it. So race and the law is like a hugely important class that I wish was required. And I wish it was required first semester 1L year. Um, but for some reason, it's not. It can't be. I don't know the politics of that. So, But PIF exists, right? So PIF is a much more personal reflection. It's not a um, deep dive into the racial um, underpinnings of our existing law. So what I think that should be done and I think the goal always was for those PIF concepts to be incorporated into every single 1L doctrinal class. So you have PIF, you're looking at your own personal biases in PIF, but you're also learning in property law and in torts and in civil procedure for semester how much the system is built against minority communities. The professors are talking about that. White professors are talking about it. And then when you get to second semester where you take criminal law and constitutional law and contracts, you have already a solid foundation about how civil procedure and torts and property work against communities of color. And then you can get really into how the law was never even really built to support those communities of color in the second semester. I think that there is a way for it to be done, but it would take a concerted effort on behalf of white law professors who have taught the same classes for a really long time to decide to commit to that level of education, which is much deeper than what I think we get. That's, that's interesting. And I, as someone who spent a small, uh, but I think informative number of years in education, I've thought about that question that I asked you of, you know, is it better to do it as a standalone or better to do it in um, more intricately woven or or some kind of combination as you described, which I, I think is really smart. I the th- One of the things that I shared with the um, teaching curriculum committee is that I would really prefer to see PIF in the spring semester. Um, because, at least to me, for it to have its greatest impact, you need people sharing very personal things. And when you're doing that, having only known each other for a number of weeks, you're a lot more guarded, which is just human nature. And so I felt as if, or I feel as if, if you were to wait until the spring to offer or require that course, that you're going to get a bit more sharing. Um but that, that that dynamic that you just described, I, th- I think, is totally doable. Uh, I do think that it requires a concerted effort. But the way you describe it, it's honestly not Herculean. I think the, the, what you said at the close is, is probably the biggest challenge of uh, your, you know, some professors who are going to say, I've been doing this for so long, I know what I'm doing, or this is the way I've always done it. Or what does that have to do with contracts? Um, you know, don't get me wrong. There are some subjects that have a less direct relationship with social and racial justice than, say, criminal law or constitutional. That's absolutely mm-hmm. true. Um, mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean that those courses must be vacuumed and, and strictly, uh, you know, meta discussions rather than practical discussions. Um, mm-hmm. well, if you're, if you're a incoming student, uh, or you're a one L and you have the opportunity, Radica clearly endorses race in the law. I read, uh, Randall Kennedy's who was actually a guest on the show, uh, race crime in the law years ago. Um, and that was really impactful. Although 
I was probably reading it over the summer, which means I'm a white guy reading a book on a beach about race crime and the law. So it's a a fairly detached. uh, I'd rather you be reading that than, you know, James Patterson or whatever. Whatever The the spy's got to save the submarine or whatever the hell they do. I've never read any (laughs) of his books. Um, Coming into Loyola, what were your expectations? You know, I, to be honest, I did not know much about the school's social justice mission. I was more drawn to its um, desire to churn out very practically oriented graduates rather than theoretical graduates who focused on theory of the law uh, or who focused on having a theory of skills. I wanted to be able to uh, graduate and say, I know how to do X, Y, and Z. And Loyola taught me that. And from what I was reading, um, the school was good at that. In fact, it's due to, like you said, being mindful of the history, Loyola started as a night's law school, specifically designed for people working during the day to go to law school at night. Um, mm-hmm. And then, quick aside, the top law schools in the country back in the 70s worked with the ABA to make it, make it all three years, make it theory focused. So that is how that ended up shifting. But I think Loyola still does a good job of turning out fairly practical applicants. I was a member of a clinic I, that was far and away the most um, practical hands-on experience I gained. Um, but what were your expectations and impressions of the school and how did those how did those match over the last three years? Yeah, I had none. Loyola was a backup for me. It was a second choice. I got waitlisted in their school, so the goal was to transfer after a year at Loyola, um, which is just so, it's hilarious to me because I am, you know, a social justice warrior with a cape on, (laughs) my family likes to say. Um, So I didn't know what I was walking into, and, and that's shameful. I mean, I know that's so irresponsible to come to a law school not fully understanding, but it was not my intention to stay here. And then I did realize eventually, not eventually, very quickly, very quickly. I think, I think when I received color of color of law in the mail by Richard Rothstein, it was our summer reading before we started law school. That's when I realized, Oh wait, they're doing something there. And when I came here, I realized that, um, at least the goal was for it to be a very social justice, public interest um, oriented law school. Um, And I loved that. I loved getting color of law in the mail. I was so excited to start law school. Once I received that book, I, I was like, okay, every single student who's at that law school will have read this book. So they will know the same things that I know about redlining and about segregation And we'll all be equally fired up about it. And we'll all want to take it on head on together. Like I was so enthusiastic, but it was only after I received the book. And then I came here and I realized, yeah, there are professors and students who do care about that. And then there are a lot who don't. (laughs) And, um, I, you know, just like I said previously, it's the same group of students who take those classes. It's the same group of students who attend the talks. Um, and, I, I'm grateful that the law school has like amended its mission statement to cl- include anti-racism. And I've seen in my three years um, baby steps being taken towards meeting that mission statement. Um, and I'm happy. I'm happy about that. I am. I'm sad about um, the low enrollment numbers of students of color. Like I think that um we need critical mass of students of color in order for things to really change. And I think that's like a long-term process. I, I think that the LSAT has a big um, part to play in um, achieving critical mass in law schools. I think the LSAT is a big barrier. I think obviously cost is a big barrier. I think that lack of pipeline, um, there are lots of, things holding Loyola back and all law schools back from fully achieving that. But I, I am comfortable in saying that I've seen Loyola 
make changes, take steps to make those improvements. And I feel comfortable that even after I leave, that work is going to continue. I mean, obviously, I'm not the reason that work is happening. So (laughs) of course, it's going to continue after I leave. But I yeah, I'm just going to leave. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Um, you know, as as we're homing in on graduation and now six semesters later, were there, you talked about race and the law and that's, it sounds, and forgive me, if, uh, or correct me rather if I'm putting words in your mouth, but it sounds like if you were to talk to, you know, an incoming student, that that would be the top course that you say, make sure you take this before you leave. Um, is that accurate? Um, yes, because <laughs> everything is racist, literally every law, every system, everything related to the law is, and I can say that until I'm blue in the face and people will not believe me. But when you take a class like that, you read the literature, you read the research, and you are forced to accept it because it's fact. And I think that a big um, something that's really holding us back in society from like fully moving past our extremely racist foundation is accepting that that is true. It's, it's fact and classes like race and the law make those facts indisputable. And that's why I think it's so important. You know, I was I was thinking, I was watching something recently, I think it was a John Oliver episode, where he talked about a public, uh, public interest campaign by plastics companies that began back in the 70s that essentially put the onus on you, the purchaser of plastic, to then deal with it in a way where I've bought this bottle of Pepsi now you recycle. Now you go out there and you go be green with this plastic bottle rather than say, hey, we're producing this massive amount of plastic. We should be good stewards and figure out a way to do something with this. And mm-hmm. I think what you you might be getting at is this kind of dichotomy where on the one hand, the school, and, and I'm not laying this at Loyola's feet, I'm just saying this is a possibility where the school could say, we offer race crime law. We offer professional identity formation. You know, one's an elective, one's a required course. But, you know, the onus is on, is, is on you. Rather than take a step back and say, we're providing all of this information. We're providing common law contracts, property torts, et cetera. Isn't it incumbent upon us, if we believe in this, to then go imbue that throughout all the coursework in order to make sure that we take responsibility for what we're putting out there, because as graduates, we are the product, you know, we are, we are the thing that Loyola sells to the world. It's not an education. It's it's graduates, because if we all came out terrible, uh, you know, we were complete knuckle draggers of practicing law, then we wouldn't get jobs and no one would hire us and the school would go bankrupt. And so, you know, if we're the product and they're thinking about what product are they creating and whether that product matches with their mission, from what it sounds like, it's if it's the same people as you described going through these courses and it's the same people pursuing that, then that to me speaks to a disconnect. That to me shows that the this, this school is more doing the plastics company route. We're saying, we give you this opportunity to recycle. We give you this opportunity to enroll in race crime and the law rather than take a step back and say, if we think that there's a fundamentally uh, skewed way that the law works to oppress some and to benefit others, why don't we make the entire education uh, rooted in that? Not necessarily dogmatically focused on it, but with a river running through it. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful analogy. And I agree wholeheartedly. I think and I think just like in real life, you'll have if you have a subdivision, you'll have 20 families who are really committed to recycling, super committed to it. And they're not going to be able to stop filling the landfills with just their efforts. You know, it's going to take the entire subdivision, the entire city the entire country 
to reduce the number of plastics in the landfill. Um, and that's exactly it. Like I can care so deeply and devote my whole life to dismantling a very racist system. And I think that um, I, I can comfortably say there are 30 other students who are going to graduate with us, who I've taken many classes with and had many talks with, who will be just as passionately devoted to it. But it's the other 200, um, especially especially the white men, you know, I know it's like, it's a, it's a drum that I'm tired of beating, but that's what it's going to take, you know, that's what it's going to take. That was a very apt analogy, I think. Were there on the on? I'm going to take a step back and ask the opposite question. Were there any classes? One all required courses aside, because you can't get around that. But were there any classes that you took where you thought, "Damn, I should not have taken that course," or frankly, even I guess I'll include a required course too. Or like, man, that was just such a misfire. You know, I'm racking my brain, and I I feel very like happy with the overall makeup of my legal education as far as subjects and the knowledge that I'm leaving with. So, I mean, of course there are classes like admin law <laughs> that are boring and that um, felt painful at the time, but governmental agencies are like the vast majority of what we deal with in our lives. And it's pretty nice to be able to like understand how our society works. So as, as painful as admin was for me at the time, I really understand how important it is. And I have um, like tangibly felt my deeper understanding of this country and the systems that I'm forced to deal with because I took that class. So like, I, I really feel that there was value in every class that I took, but I also was very deliberate about the classes that I took. Like I didn't take a class just because we were going to be tested on it. I didn't take a class just because, um, you know, a few students said we did. I can give examples of classes like fed tax and biz orgs that um, business organizations and federal income tax that I think uh, a lot of people recommended and I know myself and I know that I would have really detested my law school experience that semester if I had taken those types of classes. Instead, I took race in the law. I took criminal procedure, investigation and adjudication. I took street law. I took, you know, health justice project. I took classes that I, I knew I'd be passionate about. So I, I can comfortably say that I'm leaving law school with a really well-rounded um, experience and classes that I enjoyed taking each and every single one of them. I got something out of them. That's really great. And I'm sure the administrators and teachers who are listening will feel very proud of that. And they should. That's, that, that's exactly what you want to hear from a graduating student. So that's, that's really great. I mean, I didn't, I didn't take classes that people told me I needed to take, though. I'll just be honest. I know business organizations is a class that everyone says is so important, but I know myself and I wanted to, I'm, I was 30 years old when I came to law school. You know, I know this is something you can relate to. Like, I didn't do this for shits and giggles. Like, it wasn't just because I had nothing better to do or, or I was young and, <laughs> um young and you know had all this time and energy no it's because i i made a deliberate choice in my life and i didn't want and i wanted to stay true to that i wanted to stay true to the reason i came to law school and i wanted each semester to mean something to me that's that's really great i i came i came because i felt finally ready i I had a friend that I went to college with. We both actually finished college in three years, not because we were bright. We just, um, I don't know. I really don't know how that, well, he's bright. I'm not, but uh, <laughs> we finished in three years together and he went straight to law school and he was talking to me about it when we were uh, seniors in college. And it's like, you should think about it. Like, yeah. I woke up at noon today in my PJs. I'm not ready for that. Like that's serious stuff. Wait, he went to law school at 21. Yeah. Oh my um, goodness. People are amazing. Yeah. And then he graduated in 2008. So yay. <laughs> oh um, but he, he, he ended up doing great. Um, 
but I never felt ready. And I felt finally ready at 30, what, 35 when I started here. Um, and that I, I came to, because my mind has always worked this way. My mind has worked in the way of playing both sides, playing devil's advocate, really wrestling with things. Um, and I just wanted to get better at that. And that was, that was my, my goal coming into Loyola was just to simply get better at it. I don't know if I've gotten any better at it. I know I've done it more to my wife's great dismay where I pick apart every little thing that she says to her unending frustration. That's a huge issue in our marriage also. Not that this is like a marriage therapy podcast, (laughs) but I was a therapist before I came to law school and now I'm a therapist lawyer. And my husband I mean, sometimes he just sits down and puts his head in his hands and he's like, I, I don't, I can't, I don't know what, I don't know what to say to you. Like you will pick, pick apart every single thing that I say. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm like, oops, you know, <laughs> I know it's true. I can't be doing this to my spouse, but yeah, my brain is definitely different than when I started, which is amazing, right? That me at 30, you at 35, that our, our brains can, uh, I'm, I mean, we already had these skills, but they have completely been taken over by this analytical bug that spread through law school like a virus it's not a good, not a good thing to say. i like the um, um i like the therapist lawyer i hope that you uh you kind of hold out your shingle with that uh title I, I think that that could really serve you well i like therapist lawyer that's good it's definitely better than uh analysis uh therapist you know, you don't want to be an analrapist. <laughs> no, no, definitely don't want to be an analrapist. <laughs> um, what you you talked about um, the race in the law, Claire's. Was there any other specific, uh, um, really targeted coursework that you wish the school had offered? I honestly don't have an answer for that right now. Race in the laws is kind of the most important thing in my opinion because <clears throat> I think that if more people had a deeper understanding of that it would change our entire legal system as we know it and I think that's necessary. Um I don't know, do you have an answer? No. I think you probably only are able to give that answer after having been practicing for a few years and you realize damn I really wish I'd learned right. that in law school. Um there were some I have heard technology you know, technology, there's a complete lack of acknowledgement of technology. You're talking about like how to use the legal research databases? That's about as in-depth as we get tech-wise in law school. Um, And and most of that is just like trial by fire, right? You kind of just figure out how to use it as you go along, even though they try to teach us. But when when they do try to teach us 1L year, I wasn't I had no idea what was going yeah, on. Yeah, I so still don't know what it was. Only after work, I have no idea. <laughs> it was only after working as a clerk did I learn legal research. No, I, 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 I just mean the legal field in general is really behind technology wise. But in law school, they just like to pretend that technology doesn't exist altogether. Like I think um, an, a quick example is in trial practice. I think that they, it's very common to use trial pad, which is um, an application that you use during trial. And um, I had a lot of intensive trial practice during law school and it was like purely pencil, paper binders and memorizing. Um, And I don't think that's how it is in the real world at all. So like, I think that, I think that, um, law schools could do a little more to incorporate technology just because that is a reality of the 21st century. Um, And I've heard, and I'm only saying this, I I truly don't know what I'm talking about, but it's only because I've heard lawyers um, who are practicing say that, (laughs) that, man, we knew nothing about tech coming out of law school and we really had to learn on the job. So apparently there's tech out there and I don't know what it is. And that's, that's the problem, you know, that is, I would not have expected that. I mean, I worked at a law firm last summer and there were, they had their own like kind of proprietary things of terms of how you track your hours and where the client databases are. Uh, 
and how you check for conflicts. And it's like, this is, this is so overwhelming, but I figured it's part of me wonders if they're all like per employer. So there's really no way to teach it. But anyway, the most important question I think for us to talk about is was this education worth it? And I think that it's an unfortunate question that you need to ask. It's not, it's not something that, you know, you leave the table at a restaurant for those of you who recall restaurants were these places that you went to prior to 2020, where you went with friends and you sat down at tables and had a good time. (laughs) Um, But it's not like you leave the restaurant and you think, was it worth it? Did I, what did the $80 bill stack up to $80 worth of food? But when the, when the bill for law school comes due at 150 grand or so, you have to ask that question. It would be foolish not to. Yeah, of course. Um, particularly when the vast majority of us are taking out debt in order to finance it. And as a quick aside, I will say, in terms of the social justice mission of Loyola, that is one of my, it is my biggest frustration, is that we went to that um, public interest convocation and we were, uh, either as one L's or two L's, I can't remember, but we're, that is probably the um, most striking example, but there are many others throughout the three years where we're encouraged to pursue social justice careers, which I believe in and support. But the reality is, is those jobs don't pay that well. And that's fine. But you can't then say, we're going to charge you all of this money and we want you to go be in massive amount of debt. And then that's, that's just the simple truth. You can't say, we're going to charge you this and we want you to go into a career that will laden you with debt for many years. Um, that, that's a, a real problem. I know that other law schools, um, and I understand that Loyola doesn't have as sizable an endowment as other schools, but other law schools will uh, subsidize their graduates who go into that public interest work where they'll say, okay, if you're going to go be a public defender in rural Illinois, we will um, you know, wipe out X percent of your debt for you. Um, or, or we will subsidize your current living. You know, that's, that to me seems like the right thing to do. If you're going to regularly promote social justice careers, which, which just don't pay in the way that would service the level of debt that we're all graduating with. So anyway, given the massive sticker price, uh, with the caveat, though, that, you know, we don't know, we haven't been practicing for years. You know, it's hard to say whether or not the education was, quote, worth it because we don't know what it's been, able, you know, we don't know what fruit it's been able to bear yet. But, you know, we've done this for six semesters now. What do you think? How, is is it worth the cost? And, when, and also, uh, real quick, there are soft costs, too. You know, this puts stresses on one's relationship, stresses on one's health, puts stresses on your time. Does there are other non-financial costs as well. So is law school worth it? I would say nothing is worth being $200,000 in debt because I know what that debt means for the rest of your life, right? Like, I don't know when my husband and I will be able to own a home. I don't know when we'll be able to start a family. I don't know what my credit is going to look like and credit determines everything in this, in this country. I don't think incurring that amount of debt is worth anything. Like I don't think it's worth taking out massive mortgage loans for homes either, but at the same time, I don't know what other choice I had, you know, I, I don't know what other choice I had. I don't know in this society what other choice we have. It is a capitalistic society. We attended a private institution. I tried to get scholarships, but um, they barely were a drop in the bucket. You know, I am going to be in massive debt for a really long time. And just like you said, until I get a job, until I feel that my fight is bettering society. Like I won't actually know 
it it all seems so fake to me. I know is that sounds awful to say, but like the money and the debt is fake. It's all fake. It's like it it's just numbers in my account. I look at the computer and I feel like deep existential dread looking at those numbers and then I close my computer and I'm like, okay, what do I have to read for civil rights today? You know, like it it is I've compartmentalized it to the point where it's non-existent. And I have done that to make myself feel better. Like I'm gonna do a deep psychoanalysis on myself right now. I have to feel that law school was worth it in the sense that my life goal is to make society better somehow, some way. My life goal is to impact society so that Black people and women suffer less. Like, I'm just being honest. Those are those were my goals going into law school. So if I can do that, then of course it was worth it. But that, that amount of debt, is anything worth that? Like, especially when debt dictates so much of what happens in our lives. Like, I've just given so many contradictory answers. Yes and no. <laughs> if I can make society better, then it was worth it. And I won't know that for a long time. Until then, the amount of stress that financial debt causes, no, it's not worth it. Absolutely not. And and the institution is broken. And it's sick that they ask this of us. I do feel that strongly. Um, it goes back to your plastic factory analogy, right? They're like, they're building mountains out of plastic and then giving us a chisel and asking us to chip away at it and then like figure out what to do with the scraps, right? So in that sense, it's it's messed up and it's not worth it and it's wrong. But at the same time, if it's, if I don't do it, then how is society going to change? Yeah. I mean, I, I think my educational background offers a, a, a good kind of um, comparison to that and, and to these unique circumstances where we're in, where we're pursuing, you know, once we pass the bar, we're in a career that is very much gatekept by a particular set of institutions. So I have a Master of Fine Arts in Creative Writing, which you absolutely 100% do not need to go be a writer. <laughs> Anyone can go be a writer. I chose to do that. I own my choice. Um, but it's not as if MFA programs around the country are acting as gatekeepers saying you can't go be a writer unless you come through our halls. Whereas attorneys, with the exception of California, I believe, who you can take, you can sit for the bar exam without having gone to law school. Every other state, you know, says, no, you, you have to go to law school. There, there is no way around this. Um, when, I, when I was looking at law schools, the cheapest option was University of Wisconsin for in-state uh, tuition at 21 grand. And so, you know, you, uh, after out-of-state tuition for your first year, you switch to in. But that's still with living, you know, cost of living uh, expenses tacked on as well. You're still looking at damn near 100 large. This is this is just a massive sum of money. Um, and that's why the thing that I, when I was looking at schools, the thing that I evaluated most uh, critically was job outcomes. And any school that had uh, under a certain threshold amount of um, graduates working in le- as attorneys, not, you know, JD Advantage or whatever the hell they called it on those ABA reports. Like, if you don't have X number of graduates working as attorneys or X percent rather, I'm not going to go to your school. Um, and I, look, I, I think Loyola does a good job, but like you said, this is this is serious, serious money. I mean, I, I'm like you said, I'm hard pressed to think that. I might disagree with you about the house part, but by and large, any amount you know debt that large, what could possibly be worth it? I mean, what what could possibly get through that. And then I'll, you know, and then I'll start to think through the nitty gritty. And I'm, uh, you know, was advocacy class worth that? I remember I did the math one L year, uh, every single day at Loyola and based on one L tuition cost $476. So if you break down, you know, if you're in class Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, each day of those classes cost $476, which is just mind blowing. Oof. Keep those numbers to yourself, Matt. 
No, I, for me, I, I am like a very, <laughs> um, I think like idealistic sometimes I've been called a dreamer. I've been called, um, fanciful, <laughs> whimsical, <laughs> and, you know, I, for me, I, I go back to like, you know, I'll have 90 years on planet earth. If I'm lucky. And we all have our own motivators and our own values. And my, my time on earth and my opinion will be worth it. Like it was worth it for me to be born on this planet. If I can use what I've been given to improve the condition of others. And that $200,000 worth of debt is um, non-existent in my mind because it provided what our, you know, it just provided a, an, a key to open doors to make the world a better place. And I don't know if that's true. I don't know if it's me being idealistic. I, I, I know my dad and husband don't like it when I talk like that because for them, the debt is very real. And of course it is for me too. Like I already know it's going to be hard for me to buy a house or a car or anything else. Like I already know that I won't make a ton of money because, because I'm like fundamentally against using my law degree to advance the the benefits for corporations over people like I know that already um but I've accepted it and I'm hoping that our society can improve while I'm alive so that this doesn't have to happen but I don't know we'll see that's a that's a I can hear the um the struggle of the compartmentalization. It's like you're, I can hear you opening the door and then shoving it back and no, get back in there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, Literally opening it. So like we said, you know, this, this is something that we will reflect on 10 years from now um, and think mm-hmm. more about. Uh, last question. What advice would you give to someone coming to Loyola uh, this coming fall? What should their priorities be? And, and would that answer change in any way if you were speaking specifically to a woman of color like yourself? Yeah, the advice would be different based on demographics. Um, one thing that wouldn't change based on who I was talking about is my mantra, which was comparison is the thief of joy. I think that law school is um, fodder for imposter syndrome. And it really like the way it exists, it really encourages people to compare themselves to others and feel bad about themselves. And I just told myself coming in, you know, you're 30 years old, you're in a different position than a lot of your classmates and comparison is the thief of joy. So I, I aim to be a happy and joyful warrior. I want to keep fighting, but I want to retain my joy. And I, I think that um, law school, people feel that when they come to law school, they have to let it go. Just accept that you're going to be miserable for three years. Accept that this is going to be terrible. Um, you're going to just compete with your classmates the whole time. And you're going to get out and you're going to compete for a job. And you're just going to be miserable. And we're going to revel in that misery. And I like reject that notion altogether. And I think that um, the more law students who come in and say, I have a reason for coming here and that reason is not to compete with other people. That reason is not to um, elevate my own status by putting those around me down. My, my reason is my reason and I'm going to focus on that and I'm going to get this education and then, and then do what I can with it. I think that um, I really would like for more law students to come in with that attitude. I think that, I think also it's easy. I think a, a little bit of that comes with age, um, you know, not to be generic, but you do get some of that wisdom, the older that you get. So I think, um, 
I would also tell incoming law students, like, try to get a little bit of work experience before you come to law school. Try to um, do different things besides school before you commit to three more years of law school. I found that my classmates who had a more um, diverse background than just kindergarten through JD, I think, were able to create a better balance in their lives. Um, and then I would say that, you know, I, of course, always want to emphasize the systemic racism and for people to stay constantly aware of that. Um, I'm, I know it's like not cool to love Harry Potter, but I love Harry Potter and, uh, Mad-Eye Moody says constant constant vigilance and I would I would um, emphasize that constant vigilance about racism specifically in the law school in the classroom in the legal system in the application process in the clubs that you're involved in in your study groups I think that I would really encourage people to be constantly aware because we are a very small and select group of people who have been given charge of something huge that affects every facet of our society. That's 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 really good advice. I I've, I've had similar thoughts if I, in terms of if I were to ask myself that question. Um, the mental health struggles for me were really tough. I just I I got I bristled so much when I got an email. Here is your rank. Like, who are you to tell me who my rank is and what my worth is? Like mm-hmm. I either know the material or I didn't like, I just, that really frustrated me. Um, yeah. I say comparison is the thief of joy. And then the law school literally sends you an right. email saying, here you are compared to right. all your other classmates. Right. I think that was, <laughs> that was my biggest frustration with law school uh, and not loyal, just mm-hmm. law school in general of, you know, you've been doing these really mentally harmful things for so many years and you know it but you don't change because now to me the accountability is so much more because at least you before you say oh i had no idea i was doing this to you you know you know what you're doing and you just keep doing it you keep cold calling and browbeating people you keep having your entire grade based on one single exam you keep ranking us you keep doing these things that are harmful but well, that's just the way it's done. Like that's just that's insane. I mean, yeah. What's the point of the rank? Truly, I really don't know. I really don't. I spoke with somebody who was a graduate of Loyola who was part of a uh, short period in time, one or two years, where Loyola didn't do rankings, and he said, when I was applying for jobs, he went into relatively corporate law. But he said when I was applying for jobs, I was viewed with skepticism because they would look at my resume and say, "Oh, where's your rank?" And he would say, "Oh, they didn't do it." And this was and this was the way he described it. He, they would ask him, "Where's your rank?" He would and he would respond, "Loyola didn't give ranks for my class." Oh, okay, and just move on. They were they. I mean, he said they did look for it, but in its absence, they just moved on. Just like, yeah. what the hell are you doing? But anyway, my advice would be, just focus on learning the material, and unfortunately, focus on your grades because they open doors. You know, it sucks. I hate that, Matt. So. I know. I hate adult. I loathe it. I loathe it. Yeah, um, I do. But the fact is, um, you know, the because this is such a um, hierarchical and elitist focused career path, the more doors you can have open to you, the better. Um, and it sucks. My advice. My advice is prioritize your mental health over your I, grades. I, because... I agree with that completely. I, I I have Bs. I have Bs on my transcript. And you know what? I'll be fine. I'll be I'll be yeah. fine. Like nothing will happen. And I'm not going, I, I'll, I'll just be clear. I got to be in evidence. And guess what? Who's never going to go work in evidence work? <laughs> Me. <laughs> I did well. I mean, I got to be in evidence and I 
I love trial <laughs> practice, you know, but I'm I'm hoping that a B in evidence won't hold me back from <laughs> being no, a litigation no, attorney, be, you know. You will go be a great attorney therapist or therapist attorney, however you want to yeah. put it on your business card, but you will go be fantastic because mm-hmm. there's a gestalt to your law school experience just as there is in a gestalt to law school graduates. And it is not singularly determined by your grade in one particular class. So while I say focus mm-hmm. on them, keep in mind that gestalt and keep in mind what Radhika said about your responsibility. That is something that's actually the reason why I didn't go to law school straight from undergrad. I read um, a book called How to Get into Law School as a Senior in College, and I read a little excerpt by, about Erwin Cheraminsky, who was representing. Um, a three strike person uh, appeal in front of the Supreme court. And he said the night before he just didn't sleep because he knew that this guy, if I'm remembering the facts, right, he stole uh, a golf club from a, a golf pro shop when uh, someone had his back. We read that case in criminal. Right. Right. And it was yeah. just like, Oh, this is your third strike. Um, and I was like, wait, like I stole a TV five years ago. I went joyriding three years ago and now I stole a golf club and now I'm going to prison for life. And this attorney, Erwin Cheraminsky, was reflecting on the weight of this. And I felt, I, I'm not ready for this. I'm 21, I'm just not ready for this. And I, and I do feel ready now to an extent. But you're, And I think this brings it back to your point. I think this is a great place to close is be mindful of the bigger picture, which is the responsibility that you've been given as attorneys to go out and do good in the world. And whether you're making a full-time career of it like Radica will do, or probably more of a pro bono career like I will do, um, there are endless opportunities to make real positive change with your law degree that no other field has the ability to offer. And that's that level of power and responsibility is so incredible. And it's a real privilege to be able to have that. That's all from us here at The Podvocate. Thanks again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, an event you'd like us to address, or just something you're passionate about, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Special thanks to Dean Michael Kaufman for providing the resources and support to make this show possible. And thanks to our predecessors, the Dialogue DeNovo team, for launching a podcast on our campus. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podvocate.